This episode you are about to enjoy is a previously recorded episode from The Unfiltered Historian. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Unfiltered Historian. And today we have a very special segment that we are going to be bringing you guys today. We are doing our very first ever live, in-person, history happy hour. And we are here in Fredericksburg, Virginia, live at the pub. Next to me is my good friend, Paul. Paul, say hello to everybody, man. Hello, everybody. Good to have you here. I, we're both having our beers, like yep, always. we got a beer here. If you're in Fredericksburg, just a quick plug for the pub. We're having a pint, just steal the pint. I almost said pint takeover. A steal the pint event for the Hazy Beer Hug, which perhaps is my favorite beer. Just maybe. So um, if you're in town. He drinks it a lot. A lot. Sometimes too much more for my own favorite. Paul, just cheers and let's go ahead cheers, and get down to business tonight. Um, this is a topic that I know virtually nothing about other than the research I've been able to do in preparation for this event that we're doing tonight. So, uh, again, the topic tonight is the Crusades, of all things. Uh, but before we get into the nitty-gritty of the Crusades and the Holy War and the Holy Lands and all that fun holy shit, um, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about a uh, very influential historian yes. uh, that has just recently passed away. Uh, many of you probably know exactly who I'm about to mention, but we're mentioning David McCullough. Uh, David McAuliffe is a master storyteller who has written many narrative histories and is just incredible as, as writing and narration. If you've seen any of the Ken Burns films, uh, specifically baseball and the Civil War, you recognize the voice. If you've read any of the books like The Johnstown Flood, if you've read The Panama Canal, which would be The Path Between the Seas, Truman, John Adams, Truman, John Adams, you name it. McAuliffe is there, but I want to let Paul take over for a minute and explain why McAuliffe was important to him and some of the books that you've read, and then I'll touch on a little bit about what McAuliffe means to me as well. But Paul, I'm going to pass the mic. Right. So, so for me, uh, McAuliffe uh, was was very influential because the very first history book that I read of his was actually Mornings on Horseback, and it made me realize that history wasn't just a bunch of dates to memorize for school. It was about people. Um, yeah, I was 13 or 14 years old when my dad handed me the book, and that was many, many years ago now. But um, I, I read that at first, and then I was immediately hooked on anything else that he currently had. And so I followed that up very quickly with Truman, and then after that, John Adams. Um, and then I didn't read another one of his stuff for a while, but he won two Pulsers. Well, one was for Truman, one was for John Adams. So John Adams is a Pulitzer winner. 
Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I have the book. I just got it. So I'm- it's 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 his second and last Pulitzer win, but um, he he won numerous awards from many collegiate, you know, uh, uh, sort of conglomerates and, and different societies in America. But um, in 2006, he was actually awarded the uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, which is sort of like the highest honor that you can get as a, as a citizen. Um, and he did a lot of voiceover work. It wasn't just for Ken Burns. He did a lot of stuff. He worked for PBS for 12 years. Um, and uh, yeah, he did a lot of voiceover work for PBS. Uh, Primarily with his um, the series, um, I'm thinking uh, American Experiences. There it is. Okay, yeah, I was, I've watched a lot of American Experiences. I didn't even think to. Yeah, and so that's David McCall. He was much younger back then. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, when he was doing the Burn stuff, it was sort of the same era. But uh, he hosted that. He did a lot of the narration, um, and then a lot of people. I mean, I knew about him before, but a lot of people didn't really know about McCullough until the HBO series. John Adams, the miniseries that was he, he he was cameoed as a background character, and that was about it. Okay, um, it was a it was a fictional biographical synopsis of his book. It's not very historical accurate. There's a lot of like, say for example, the the scene where John Adams and Sam Adams are on the docks and they see a customs agent tarred and feathered. Yeah, that, that, first of all, that didn't happen, <laughs> and second of all. They weren't even in Boston at the time that the, these incursions were happening. They were in Philadelphia. So it's I sort of it's, like, uh, You know what? Seeing somebody gets hard and feathered on TV is pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, you, you're doing all sorts of stuff all over YouTube, so you kind of get it a little bit. But when you make it big time and you're on HBO, that's, that's a big deal. Now, so what's your fit? Because you just started reading the Panama Canal the path between the seas yes i have yeah um and obviously i got a little deviated with the crusade stuff and i'm currently working on dan jones here plug for dan jones the crusaders fantastic so far but back on dan top, jones is awesome yes he is um one that i think really had fallen i read two of his books before he passed so i i'm familiar with mcauliffe uh when i started at the park service uh, coincidentally i read 1776 and i wasn't even working at a revolutionary battlefield. I was at a Civil War battlefield, but I read 1776 and it was such an easy read. And I don't mean that like, oh, he's a bad writer. It was an easy book. But I mean, he tells a story so well and weaves it into that, that that narrative history that we really, really like. And I've seen a lot of academic historians recently slamming him for just that. Yeah. But I'm like, first, this is why we dismiss a lot of academic historians because academic historian is like a just to catch 22 it doesn't really make sense. yeah you're damned if you do or damned yeah. if you don't right but mcauliffe is able to tell factual history and make it super readable which is amazing and so uh the johnstown flood obviously a lot of you guys watching at home right now know that that's a very special place in my heart and the first book that really taught me about that and led me to want to go over to johnstown and do that full tour was david mcauliffe and in fact that's his first book mcauliffe it interviews yeah. Heiser, Victor Heiser, who is a 16-year-old survivor of the flood who watches his parents get literally wiped out in the middle of the flood. Once that raging 20 million tons of water reaches Johnstown and wipes that town out, Heiser is one of the ones that witnesses some very horrific things and is even sent in the rapids himself. And this is a crazy story, but McAuliffe gets to sit down and talk to him. And to have a source like that. Yeah. 
yeah, and the way he told to be able to actually get the information from somebody that was there, not a not only is historic of itself, but being able to take their story and bring it to the public like that is it's something you can't get every once in a while. It, it, it's it's such a crazy set of circumstances, right? And and oh, he was able to bring that story to everybody. Yeah. So so without. Um, any further ado, I just want to uh, say that this episode today, even though McAuliffe really was strictly American history, um, this episode's definitely dedicated to David McAuliffe. Absolutely. He was 100%. influential, excuse me, especially in, and I can't say he was influential when I first started because I didn't get to read anything by him, but the, the, the stuff that I have read and the, the writing style and his narration style have definitely helped make me where I'm at today. That's why I'm so into uh, yeah. it. So I'm glad we have this. So, so a little bit more about myself. I am yes, not please. I am not a historian. I, I love history. I read a lot of history books. It annoys the hell out of my wife. Um, but I got my, my BS in computer science. I, I took two history classes in college, um, but I took... In an, an elective, sort of audited class after school, when I mm -hmm. attempted to do my my graduate classes, but I ran out of money and I couldn't go back to school anymore. So, but I still read history books. I can still spend the five or ten dollars on a used history book and read about that and sure. done. And one of those is is McCullough. I will always every time I see a McCullough book I don't have, I'll buy it. <laughs> So, well, the greatest journey is currently sitting at Books a Million for seven bucks right now. About the one I will, I will have to swing. Well, yes, no, because that's the other way for me going home. So yeah, I'm going to have to, I'll have to go in the other direction. But, but. Uh, Barnes and Noble, I was, I was going to get the Path in the Seas, and the day I went to get it, it was gone. Right. Like, and it said it was in stock, so I'm like, haha, I'm going to get it. <laughs> right. And this was right. like Thursday, so I go in there to look at it, and it's, it's not there. But they, I'm, there's no McCullough books on the shelf, so I'm like. There's going to be nothing left. And I just completely bypassed the fact that they had a table set up. With every oh, and all of them right there? Stock. Right. The well, Wright I, Brothers was there. Yeah. Uh, they had the, uh, I got the Brooklyn Bridge one too. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I, I got That's that the one. one that I tried to read and I couldn't, I couldn't finish it. It was, it's one of those few books where I started it and it just, even for McCullough, I was like, okay, I got to put this one down and pick it up yeah. again later. But it's, it, it, it's really good. It's going to take a while to get into that one, but I did read a book recently about Washington Roebling from the Civil War all the way up to the Brooklyn Bridge. So I didn't realize oh, right. he fought in the wilderness around here, and he was in some of the battles that took place in this area, and then goes to the bridge, which is insane. So I was like, holy shit, oh. like, I need to get more into this. So that's the main reason I have McCullough's Brooklyn Bridge book is because I know he's going to mention multiple times my man Washington Roebling. But yes, guys, if you don't have a McCullough book, you got it. You got to pick one up. I, I would. I would. Personally, I think his best book is Truman. It's really? it's awesome. I I loved it. I still have a special place in my heart for mornings, but that's just because that was really the first book that about history that I read. That really. I mean, I read history books, you know, but it was all about dates and, you know. This happened at this time for this place, and then this many people died. And it's like that's not interesting to me. And then I read Horseback, and it's all about—I don't know if I spoke about this, but it's all about Theodore Roosevelt and his younger years between the ages of ten and I think twenty. Whatever he married, I can't remember. I almost got it too. I'm mad it's I did not. So good. I got the it's right so good. It, it's really good. Mornings is really good. Truman's really good. Everybody knows the John Adam and 1776 books, but. 
the those two are the I think the best. And I couldn't finish the Brooklyn book, but that's neither whatever. here nor there, right? Yeah. Well, no big deal. Do you want to get down to the nitty gritty? Holy shit! Yeah, let's go. Let's go about? back about a thousand years and uh, talk about the countless slaughter of people and horses and animals and equipment. Um, so are we gonna are we gonna start with Richard the first or are we gonna just talk about the Crusades a little bit? I think we should just introduce to the Crusades. So I've got my notes today, guys, because obviously I'm not a big uh, Crusade guy. This is my first really delving into Crusades history. So um, I'm gonna use some notes as my reliability there. Hey, every good historian's a note taker. It's the first thing we learn to do is research and note take. So I prepared what I could and compiled what I could. You know, thanks to Wikipedia and a few other sources, uh, we we got some good stuff tonight. So, and for those who don't like Wikipedia, just a quick plug: even academically, we encourage it for our students when they're doing a big research project. As and long they, as they show me their sources and yeah, we can verify reference. it, we're good. But to begin, um, if you want to start us off and really kind of yeah, why we're in this situation where the Holy Land's about to be reclaimed by a completely different religion, because if I'm not mistaken, the the, the two factors or the the enemy. I want to call them enemies, but the two sides we're looking at is the Christians and the Muslims. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's a gross oversimplification of the entire event. But basically, um, the, the, the Crusades were attempting to have the, the, the Christians retake the Holy Land, mm-hmm. and the Muslims were currently there. But Jerusalem was, during specifically... The, the Third Crusade was sort of a homogeny of different religions and cultures because it was sort of the crossroads of the entire world. We're talking about the Far East all the way to Spain and Portugal. So it's it's this a, a widespread thing. Yeah, this is not just like some central location. Like we're not just talking about this is only happening in Jerusalem. This is like the entirety of yeah. Europe. So it's, it's the Mediterranean, uh, that whole area you're all the way up to i at this point i wouldn't say norway but they they were involved in some aspects and then it goes all the way over to russia and then kind of goes down the silk road is a, is a great way to kind of find the map of the crusade okay so that was the road that led you from acre jerusalem alexandria to the far east and okay. that's where the trade was. And it was all about money. It's, you know, a lot of people think it's about religion. It isn't. It's right. about it's about pillaging and taking stuff back and money. Okay. There was a massive amount of money that was processed through all this. And one of the big factors of that, specifically with the phrase, is the Templars and their construction of modern banking. Now, okay. That's where all the money went, along with a bunch of families that, like the Medici's and the Torintos and all those people, um, and they were talking about the different cathedrals that can be in all these great works and all that kind of stuff. Well, that costs money. Well, they can't keep taxing their own people. They, uh oh, I died. Uh oh, what happened? Am I gone? No, no, you're not gone. I will. I will take your word for it. Because You're suddenly saying? I was gone. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I was here and you. But um, all that costs money. And the best way to get money wasn't by taxing your people. It was by attacking the people next door. 
So they would wage these crusades to filter money. And the Pope was in on it and everybody was in on it. And, but that's, and this is my opinion on it, but of some, of the, we some of the biggest, yeah, this isn't strict historical fact, but there is a huge amount of data that we can see that a lot of these people weren't in it for quote unquote, the religious, I, I don't want to say revelation because that's the wrong word, but the, the religious upbringing of all these people, it's, that's yeah. kind of not, the, not the thing, but my favorite crusade is, is actually the third crusade, which is called the King's crusade because you have the King of England, the King of France, Frederick the first, the Pope, and they were all going up against the massive um, solonate of the um, Ayyubids. There we go. Um, started 1189 and went to 1192. So it was a relatively short one, but that's for two reasons. Okay. The the king of Jerusalem, uh, Baldwin the Fourth, died, and the land didn't he, he didn't have any sons he had no heirs mm. and one of the reasons it kind of became a shit show is because of that and then afterwards it went to his nephew who was then named Baldwin the fifth he gave he, it was just it was bad um but they attempted to capture the all this and you know, we're talking the Holy Land. And then once they drove him out of Acre, uh, the King of France uh, went down and attempted to liberate Jerusalem. Um, kind of kind of had a hard time about that. And then uh, after they attempted to, after the failure of trying to get Jerusalem back, um, that's where the Fourth Crusade came in, but that happened okay. about 10 years later. Right. Um, so, but it was, it's one of the bloodier ones, but it had all the major Kings in Europe involved. So it was, it was crazy. So from my understanding too, and kind of the piggyback off, we were saying, we're talking about the crusades. Like we're not talking about like a war, like the American civil war that we typically talk about here or like even world war two, this is spanning from 1095 to 1291. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a century after century long struggle broke it into different sects. It, so it really had, like, first, second, and like the Battle of the Crusader States. Like there's a lot that you have going on in all of this. Yeah. Okay. And so, the the amount of lives that were lost at the time was staggering. We're we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, because the official numbers put it somewhere around five hundred to Seven hundred fifty thousand people, and that's just for soldiers, and that's through. We're not talking civil like civilians no. that are living in these areas no, no, no. that are being. And of course, you know we're not talking, but and you know I know we're going to get into this probably later. But one thing that I found really really interesting, and uh, again, a lot of you guys that keep hearing me talk about the civil war and modern weaponry and a modern war. Well, this is its very own modern war too. You have the in, the introduction of the crossbow, the crossbow yeah. that we would think about. So there, there's these battles where you would have soldiers sticking spears into the ground as a shield wall. And then behind that, 
you have this army of crossbow. Uh, what do you call them, archers? Are they archers when you have a crossbow? They're, they're technically crossbowmen, but crossbowmen. Okay, it's, it's the same. It's the same basic principle. It's the same. Okay, but I mean, to me, that's like you're you're looking at the modernization of what we see today in warfare. So, like, we're even looking at the beginnings of the Napoleonic warfare because you're starting to see tactics kind of assemble in this in this war. Uh, some of the wars before that, you're looking at a lot of things like this disorientation you don't have a large-scale organization to the troops you're bringing into you know combat but here when we're talking in the crusades you're looking at a lot of innovative tactics that are beginning to debut in this world out of necessity of course yeah um but to me what struck me really heavy was the introduction of the crossbow introduction of these christians taking these huge sticks slamming them in the ground and protecting themselves against uh, the soldiers that are coming after them lot of them on horseback with swords yeah and and one of the most fascinating things to me about the the technological advances during the crusades is actually armor smithing if you look at if you look at armor like plate armor mm -hmm. from 10 i stand from uh, from 10 uh i've forgotten the date but anyway from the from the beginning of the first crusade to the end of the second crusade you can see the progression of of the, how the armor was made and the advancements of like the lobster shelling mm -hmm. like it wasn't just one solid piece anymore because you could actually pierce that right. when you layer it you can deflect a crossbow bolt, or attempt to anyway because crossbows in those 150 years also increased in strength you know there were some that had a 200 pound draw strength which I mean I don't know if you guys have ever done archery but That'll that'll punch through a, a Ford Bronco. So oh it's God. it's hold on. It's so specifically powerful. a Ford Bronco. Well, I'm a Chevy guy, so okay, yeah. yeah. I, I um, so we're good. <laughs> but uh, no, specifically, it's it's one of those things where you look at the. I, you know, one of the great things, you know, one of the great things about humans love inventing ways to killing each other. Like that's something true. that's been true since the beginning of time. You know, ever since, you know, the first man took a rock and beat another man to death with it, right. all the way to us making ICBMs, it's just been one of those fascinating things about how we spend so much time and energy killing each other. Yeah. And you know that, okay, that's funny because a lot of the times, you know, as innocent as this may sound, a staff ride is just that. That's a historian being able to influence the military and teach them, exactly. hey, this is how we killed each other 150 years ago. I'm going to try to give you ideas on how to better kill the enemy you have to face today. That, yeah, mil and military theory is all about history. Killed. Absolutely. So I, I, had a, I had a friend uh, that went to VMI mm -hmm. uh, after high school, and he didn't realize how much history books he was going to be reading, and he hated it. So if you don't like history, don't go to VMI. Yeah, don't go to VMI. You know, and who who's some good alma maters from VMI? Who's that? So Robert E. Lee. West Point. Lee's a oh, West no. Pointer. Jackson. Jackson. That's what Jackson's I'm thinking of. also a West Pointer, but he is an instructor at VMI. Who am I thinking of then? There is a very famous general, Civil War general, that went to VMI. Am I thinking Grant? No, because he went north. Uh, we can do a big search on this, but I want to yeah. say a big hello to the tattoo historian who is with us right now. What's up to you as well, man? I hope you're having a good day. Uh, this is a different thing that we don't really do, but I'm glad to see you in here tuning in. I hope everything's well, sir. Now we have to look up that who actually went to VMI. I mean, 
I know a lot of instructors from the sorority kind of put me on the spot. Here, man. Oh, crap, who did go to VMI? And we're looking at the sorority. But at VMI does produce some of the greatest generals after, too. You get a lot of good. It's very similar to West Point, but localized to Virginia. Hold on. You're good. Take your time. Here's this moment to take another sip of the hazy beer. Oh, Patton went there. Patton. Patton Sr. Patton went there, yep. And then uh, let's see here. Tattoo we got the story uh, dropped his Patton Sr.? Yep. Patton Sr., yeah. Oh, Walter H. Taylor. He was the he was um, Lee's aide de camp. That's who I'm probably thinking of. Tim Wilking over there thinking and then, of that. Uh, Rose, there was, um, Robert Rhodes. That's another one. And then uh, there was there was um, Edmund of the 38th uh, Virginia who was really? killed in Pickett's, yeah. But I thought for sure that Stonewall went to VMI. Why did I think otherwise? Well, because he was teaching there. That makes sense. I mean, I understand that, like, why he was. He was an instructor. He was possibly, like, the most easy cure to insomnia that we had at that time. And his students definitely reflected that. Uh, (laughs) Tattoo historian over there says on Twitch that Patton Jr. went there for a year, I believe. Okay. Okay. Very cool. But I know that he uh, he graduated up north, but that's that's fine. I won't hold it against him. (laughs) Um, so. Specifically, uh, during during the, cru- the the Third Crusade, we had the Battle of Jaffa, which yes. was the turning point of the the campaign. So the Saladin uh, took Jaffa, um, and I don't know if you guys know where Jaffa is, but it's uh, it was a city um, about uh, it's about fifty miles northwest of Jerusalem. Okay. It's right on the coast. And that's that was email the, me that I'll send it. Sure. To. Yeah. So we got a map coming inbound right now, folks. And do you have the paper notes of Jaffa on you by chance? I do. Yes. You got them online, right? I got them right so there. We both. We both. I'm the old paper, old school paper guy. I have to have papers in front of me. So we'll start. We're going to do it weird. We're going to jump all over history. We're going to start with Jaffa and then go to the Battle of Hatton afterwards. I like that one. We can talk about volcanoes and a bunch of other. Yeah, that was. Yeah. yeah. That was a good one. All right, let's see here. Okay, hold on. Yeah, while you're doing that, I can get into a little bit about Jaffa and just give you guys a little bit of an um, overview. So Jaffa took place during the Crusades. Obviously, it's going to be the third Crusade that we're talking about there. And it was a series of campaigns under the army of Sultan Saladin. Uh, the Crusading forces are led by King Richard I of Her Majesty's Also known as and King Lionheart. Richard the Lionheart. That's where we get Lionheart from? Yeah. Aha, okay. It was the final battle of the Third Crusade. So I know we're talking it's in the third, but this is the very last. And a lot of that attributes to the exhaustion of both armies. Mind you, a lot of these generations that are fighting are probably not even born during the First Crusades, which start in 1095. We're almost 100 years after the beginning of the Crusades, when Jaffa takes place. Again, Jaffa taking place in 1192, August 8th. We just passed um, someone else. I'm not a mathematician, uh, guys, so you're going to have to excuse me for not having the exact... Yeah, it's like 900 years. Um, yeah, it's a long time ago. That's enough. It, it is 900 years. It's not even 1,000 years, is it? Uh, yeah, it's like 900 and... I'm trying to do the math, man. It's something like that. Yeah. 
But um, so essentially, the battle was rather decisive to begin with, um, and Saladin's going to lead a force to negotiate with Lionheart at the end of this, and end immediately the hostilities that are taking place between the two warring armies. Uh, the battle definitely illustrates the determined spirit of Saladin and the courage and tactical skill of Richard, or Lionheart, if you will. Again, just to reiterate, it was the final armed encounter between the two monarchs before the ratification of the Treaty of Jaffa brought the crusade to an end, and the battle ensured that the crusader presence in the south of Palestine was secure. So what, um, what's the significance of Jaffa? What is this really doing? I know it's ending the hostilities and it's creating a truce, but what is this actually doing in the grand scheme of things here? Because we see that the Crusades end, the Third Crusades end in 1192, but we know that the entirety of the Crusades isn't over until 1291. Like, so what is this going to do? Not much. Um, so the, 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 the whole Battle of Jaffa was fought specifically for the, the Solonate to keep control of the Holy Land. Um, you got to remember when, when Baldwin the fourth died, he was what was called the leper King. He had, he caught leprosy at eight mm. or nine. I think it might've been a little older. I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but, um, when, when he died, he was the King of Jerusalem. He held on to those lands. And when he died, everything just kind of went up in the air and people were claiming stuff and taking stuff. And this is mine. No, that's his. And when Baldwin the fifth tried to calm everything down, he was ousted almost immediately. Um, and then once uh, once the Third Crusade started and uh, Richard Lionheart decided to get into the mix of things, it, uh, it kind of caused sort of a domino effect. Damn, what the hell was that? <laughs> I heard that too. I'm sure you guys heard it as well. That's the fun thing about history happy hours. Anything can happen. Yeah, just random stuff happening every once in a while. Um, but when, uh, when Richard, uh, went down and, and everybody was going down the coast and they, they all met at Jaffa, they originally didn't fight actually. They, they only were there. I think they were there for four days having negotiations. And when they failed, that's when the fighting started. And okay. it was, it, it wasn't really a fair fight. Um, the, the strength of the crossbowmen for the uh, for I, I guess the Christian side um, heavily outgunned um, the, the cavalry uh, heavily the the Saladins of the Sultan of Egypt. Um, okay. There were a lot uh, of casualties on the Christian side, but officially, there's only two deaths. Okay. Um, for the, the for the Muslim side, it was seven hundred dead, fifteen hundred horses, and it it took to the point that after the the counteroffensive was over by the the Saladin, they were they were both done. It was like we have no more resources; we have to kind of figure stuff out. And then where Jaffa is is currently in Palestine, and it was. Basically ruined. It was a scorched earth campaign by by the Sultan. So um, it was a scorched earth. Yeah, they they gave zero fucks about what was left and who was left. They they were basically going after everything. Um, yeah, but so then a true scenario. You're right. Right, right, right. So 
it was, it's very, I mean, that goes, I mean, scorched earth goes all the way back to the Egyptians. You know, it's not mm. something that's brand new. No, um, but a lot of stuff was raised. Um, but then there was a truce after the Battle of Jaffa, which kind of caused everything to stop. The Christians couldn't get to Jerusalem. And um, I actually, I think that map, uh, if you want to take a look at it. Absolutely. Did you email it? I did. Awesome. Let's get that. And uh, you'll see how the, the Christians came down the coast and then were just basically stopped. But the, the Christians were hyper-extended on their supply lines. Even though they had the coast, they didn't have enough boats to resupply everybody. And they couldn't do it over land because they kept getting raided by the county. Uh, and then after Jaffa, they were like, hey, everybody's... I thought I sent it to you. Did I not? Oh, it's still trying to send it. It's all good. Where did you find that? Let's see here. There it goes. Cool. Sorry. For yeah, sorry about that. Sometimes my client like has a stroke and I need to kick it in the ass. It's all good. That's how our computers work. Um. So, although Richard was able to go down and, and get all these different territories and, and reestablish all of this control over Palestine and uh, Lower Turkey and, and you know all that kind of stuff, realistically, you're looking at massive losses on, on both sides. And just the amount of carnage that happened in a in only a three-year campaign is it's crazy um, but the, the aftermath of Jaffa was was probably the the biggest biggest I'm having a really hard time so Saladin retained Jerusalem but the pilgrims people that so what was the point right they, they could already do that beforehand. So was it just because you're trying to do like a dick measuring contest? Or is it, is it one of those things where if we can get control of the Holy Land, we can pack the, the of the Holy People or whatever. It just it doesn't make sense to me. It's one of those things where I look back on history and kind of go, really? We had to do that whole thing for... For that, that, really that really just fucking happened? So I don't know. Right. The thing, the thing is, yeah, did that really fucking happen? So there's the map that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. These guys can see kind of the scope of what we're talking about. So it's it's not it's not a huge amount of land that we're talking about. I, we're, we're talking about a couple of city-states. Um, they, they weren't able to capture... Uh, well, So they were able to get Antioch, which was one of those maps, uh, or one of those... Uh, um, cities that had major religious impact it's where a lot of the it's where a lot of the apostles were said to have sat down and wrote the letters uh you know and then you get down to tripoli and then you go to beirut and go down to Accra and you know jaffa finally and those things are all the different areas that were retaken during the third crusade okay but once you have kind of a general outlook of the aftermath, 
It just uh, you could have done all the stuff that you treated for before the third crusade. Right. So it was just a giant waste of money. But we got a lot of heroes out of it. So we got Richard the First, Richard Lionheart. He became famous because of his sieges going down the coast. Frederick, not so much. He was kind of a he was kind of a namby pamby kind of dude. Um, I like that phrase. He, he really liked living in a castle. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, and then if you kind of go back to uh, the Saladin, um, he he actually loved uh, Baldwin the Fourth. He they got along great. Um, yes, he was king of Jerusalem, but Saladin, specifically that Saladin, knew his condition. Had things to do, my cat, um, and offered his personal physician multiple times to help cure his leprosy. Never worked because you really can't do that without modern medicine. But it's it's such a interesting point in history because before Baldwin died, they would march out, have these giant armies face each other talk for an hour and a half, turn around and go home. Talk. And you're equipping yourself for this massive fight, but you yeah. don't talk. They, they, would, they would all, they would just go to these battlefields, sit in a tent, have a quick conversation, and they go, okay, well, you can have this barony, and I can have that barony. Um, let's talk about trade for these areas, and then... We'll have coffee and biscuits and go home. And so we should be doing it today. What the hell? Well, they were ahead of their time. Oh, well, well. So, so my my youngest uh, had a great thought the other day that instead of people fighting war, they should just play Roblox. You know, I, okay, I love that because I thought something similar. Like, if we could just put like a president of two countries that want to go to war and like give them Call of Duty or something. Yeah, and have, it's, no, it's and one and on one. Have like, a, have like a death match and just do it that way. Yeah, yeah, just like even a death match, that would be fine or something. Yeah, and have a no, and, and have like a and have oh, that'd be funny. So I think that'd be great. Oh yeah, it would. You have uh, have Joe Biden and Putin sitting in a room with controllers and just yeah. kind of going, okay, so first one to five wins um, gets to make the decisions. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to fight. And uh, Braceface, I have not made ignoring you over there on YouTube. Uh, Braceface, Jerry, thank you for calling me Stewie Griffin yet again, as I always expect from you. Thank you for viewing. Hey, thanks. Watching. He calls me Stewie all the That's time. That's awesome. It's good, good dude. Thanks, Jerry. All right, so we are back on track here, and I'm going through some notes to figure out a question for you here, because I see the rise of Saladin. Saladin or Saladin? Sal say it's Either or. I mean, the solid end is, is... Tomato, tomato, yeah. aluminum, aluminum, you know, the same thing. There you think you're welcome, Darren. I used your aluminum English. Aluminum. Aluminum. Um, so well, so Saladin, uh, he, he had a very famous battle. Yeah. Um, which you, you talked about very briefly earlier, which is the battle of, uh, battle of Hutton. And he wins that battle. He does. He okay. I mean, so the Battle of Hatton actually came before Jaffa, mm -hmm. um, but it kind of kicked off the whole revenge thing that was the Third Crusade, right? Um, so it was 
the kingdom of Jerusalem, which was, which was the, uh, and then Tripoli, and then the Knights Templar, um, Antioch, which technically wasn't a state. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got the Knights Hospital there, um, the Order of St. Lazarus, Lazarus, and the Order of Mount Joy, which actually has been contested because there isn't a lot of evidence that they were actually there. Um, and the, the people that say that they were, uh, there are plenty of other accounts that say that they weren't. Uh, but they might have been folded in with the the Knights Templar or the the Order of the Hospitaller. Okay. So it's sort of a, a weird thing. Um, now, so the, the Battle of Hatton is is one of those weird. There's a lot of backstory to it because there's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of intrigue having affairs with other people and there was a bunch of stuff oh, happening no. oh yeah if you if you go into the into the background of what's going on uh, the kingdom of jerusalem was actually divided because the guy who was king which is uh give lucin um actually became king because of his wife it wasn't because he inherited it from anybody he got the claim and got the the rights to the kingdom because he married the right girl right immediately dumped her um, and then started to kind of be like, well, he didn't die. He's still technically married to her, but they, it was, it was kind of a weird thing. And then there was a bunch of other people that were coming into the kingdom at the time, trying to get claims to that because of what happened with Baldwin IV. Um, and then once we get to, once we actually get to the battle, it's actually a bunch of different armies that all sort of have the same goal, but they all have their own goals in mind. So the Kingdom of Jerusalem is trying to reestablish claim to the, the area. The Knights Templar are there basically as glorified mercenaries. Right. And then you have a, a few other um, factions that are vying for power. So it's it's very it's it's a very pitched battle, but everybody has their own stake in it. Mm-hmm. And then once you kind of get to the point of where they're all meeting, it basically becomes a shit show. Yeah, that's so. what I was told. So I have a map here. I think it's for Hatton, actually. Let's see what we've got going on. It is. Yeah. The, and so it's also known as the Battle of the Horns of Hatton, and that's the geographical feature that we have because of a, uh, I think at the time it was a dormant, or now an extinct volcano. But at the time, I believe it was a dormant volcano. I'd, I, you, you probably have more knowledge on that than I do. I, I thought it was always an active volcano. but okay. uh, I, It I very could well be could be. Again, this is, this is new stuff. But um, basically, the Siege of Tiberius, that's the first thing that's going to take place. And that's going to take place in late May. Uh, Saladin's going to assemble, like he was mentioning, the largest army that he's ever commanded to this point. And he's going to assemble that on the Golan Heights. And around 40,000 men, including a 12,000-person strong cavalry. Cavalry, for those that don't know how to pronounce it. That's horses. Thank you. (laughs) He inspects his forces and tells 
or enforces at Tel Ashtara before crossing the Jordan River on the 30th of June. Saladin had also unexpectedly gained an alliance of the Druze community based in Saramul, led by Jamal Adin Haji, whose father, Karama, was Kamal. an age old ally. Kamala, Karama, Karama, excuse me. The city of Saramul had been sacked by the Crusaders on various occasions, and according to Jamal, the Crusaders even manipulated the assassins to kill his three elder brothers. Yep. So that's a hell of a well, thing. I don't know if they're all elder. That might be a, a mistype, but uh, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Well, so that whole family basically got wiped out when uh, when the battle was over. It would oh like the amount of heads that came off after this thing yeah. is staggering. The 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 very public and very bloody executions happened a lot. It it really was the the French Revolution yeah. with the nobility. Beforehand, uh, it. I mean, you didn't do stuff like that back in the day, but Saladin was so pissed off about everything that happened already that he just was like, "Lop, lop." Just chop so, everybody's head off. Yeah. And the battle itself takes place on July third. So the funny thing is, like the the culmination of Hatton actually happens on July fourth, but it starts on July third, and the Frankish army is going to start moving towards the uh, region of Tiberius. On their way there, they're constantly harassed by Muslim archers. They're going to pass through the springs of Tehran, which were just absolutely insufficient to provide any army with nutrients like water, like food. You're just in a barren desert at this point. Um, around midday on the 3rd, you have Raymond of Tripoli deciding that the army would not be able to reach Tiberius by the time night would fall. And he and Guy are going to change their course and veer sort of to the left um, in the direction of the streets of Kefir and Kefir Hatton, which was six miles away from their ultimate destination. I go to the south. When they, when they hung a left, they went south. Okay. And from that location, they're really able to sort of move to Tiberius, but they're still having to move there the following day. So they're not making it the day they plan to make it. They're now a day late. And you know, again, from all their Civil War stuff, it could just be hours that make or break the campaign you have planned for months and months and months. It, so could, be, it could be a false start. It could be somebody, you know, not interpreting orders correctly and going in the completely wrong direction, which a lot of people actually think is what happened in this situation. But... Uh, and that's what's crazy about it, too. And so the Muslims are going to be able to position themselves and um, pretty much put themselves in a strategic location right between the Frankish army and then the water. So you backbone them to where their escape route is the water. And again, you know anything about military history, that's the last place as an army that you want to find yourself is in between an army and a river or a lake or an ocean or water source of whatever, because that could be the piecemeal destruction of your forces. So they make their arrival on the uh, campsite, which is on an arid plateau near uh, Miskana, and the Muslims surrounding the camp, so that they're going to move and kind of circle this camp. It, uh, the quote is that they encircled it so closely that a cat could not have escaped. And according to Atir, the Franks were despondent and tormented by thirst, whilst Saladin's men were jubilant in anticipation of their victory. So we're looking at a fucking siege at this point. 
That's exactly what this is. And it's such an instant siege, too. Sieges take days. Sieges take months. They take years to really, really, really be effective. Sometimes less. Uh, we see in, like, Vicksburg and, and, and uh, Petersburg. But here in, in Manhattan, it's almost instant. The night they're surrounded on July 3rd. This is July 3rd and July 4th. They're immediately cut off from any resource that they might need. And through the night... The uh, Muslims are going to... Yeah, they made a lot of noise. Oh, my God, yeah. They are praying, singing, beating drums. They're, like, showing symbols to them from their little surroundings. Um, They're setting fire to dry grass and making the Crusaders' throats even drier because who doesn't need a bunch of campfire smoke to dry out your throat? Yeah. Um, They were thirsty. Uh, The Crusaders were absolutely demoralized. And now they're tired. And then, uh, and then they started to get fired on. And uh, the the Muslim archers were like, "Hey, let's take some pot shots at these guys." Yeah. And uh, that that really demoralized uh, the the Crusaders, and they they eventually broke camp. And uh, when uh, when they broke camp, it just it was it was like Washington across New Jersey. It was just a, a hauling ass. That's what's going to bring us to the morning of July 4th, huh? Yep. Yeah, the Crusaders were absolutely blindsided. Uh, the smoke that's still just reeling from the fires that were set by Saladin's forces are going to obviously play an effect on this. And they came under fire, like you said, from mounted archers. So are these, oh, are they these mounted? Crossbow? Yeah, they were mounted archers. Uh, they're probably shortbow. They could be crossbowed as well. Um, a lot of people didn't use crossbows on mounts because you can easily lose them. And they were very expensive to make. I'm sure. Um, so it's probably short bows, but uh, you know, it, you know that's uh, that's something that they got from the Mongols. You know, that's something that uh, you know they probably stole. It's like, hey, this is a good idea. Let's stick some archers on the back of a horse. And let's just talk about the fact that these archers have just been resupplied with 400 loads of arrows the night of July 3rd. Right. So a load is anywhere between 100 to 200 arrows. So, like, that's a bundle of arrows as a load. Four. So, and they got 400 loads. So, if we're doing the math right, that's like uh, that's like 8,000 arrows. So that's, that's pretty demoralizing. Yeah, I'd say so. So, with that being said, and keep in mind that these guys are, are very thirsty, you're very demoralized, and you're also very just... Exhausted. You're done with fighting. This is taking its toll on you. Uh, after this is going to take place, the Crusaders break. They're going to change direction, and Saladin still starts to follow them. It's going to block the route forward from any retreat. So now the the Christian army, the Franks, do not have. Any nope. They're now seemingly cut off. They are surrounded. They, they got no water. No. They got nowhere to go. Bell the end for them. Yeah. Oh, they, they probably knew it as well. And once they tried to, to make that retreat and, and beat Cheeks and run, they, they knew it was curtains. There, there's no way to, to really look at the situation, you know, with no supplies, no water, no no will to fight, and just kind of go, shit, buddy. <laughs> yeah, this is it. You're done. Yeah. And that's the thing. So Raymond's actually able to escape. So that's Count Raymond, by the way. Um, he's going to... 
launch two charges to try to break through to the water supply because obviously he's got a thirsty army. The thing he needs to do is find that water supply, capture that water supply, and then take it. Um, two charges are led. Ultimately, they're unsuccessful. They're not going to break anything. But Raymond's able to escape now. And when he escapes, he leaves another person, guy, in a place to where he becomes desperate. Uh, uh, most of the uh, Christian infantry at this point have deserted or started fleeing in mass onto the horns of Hatton. That's that volcano that we were mentioning there, where they just completely dissipated from history. They're not yeah. even a part they're, of that. They're, they're gone. They just, they just walked off the map of existence. Yeah. Um, five of Raymond's knight went over to the Muslim leaders to beg that they mercifully be put to death. Yeah. Uh, which actually uh, kind of so so here's the thing is when that happened uh, Saladin kind of went oh these guys are pretty desperate to die hmm that's interesting I'll note that for later because when he gets to the aftermath he, all of the, the, the knights because he thought that they were so cowardly head off with your head off. yeah and so and when the crusaders were surrounded they they did attempt to have a counter charge a couple of times, but they, they were so basically they were so depleted of resources that they couldn't get out of the circle. And you know, you're talking about fighting people, you know, eight to one, you know, in some places. You, you just can't do that back then. No. That was suicide. But when they when they finally got disorganized enough, they still fought on and there were eyewitness accounts about how they were fighting bravely, but they were, I mean, they were going to die. And then everybody who was captured, basically, it, it, you know, once they surrendered, it, that was it. There's no way for them to, to seriously have any recourse or any sort of power at the table. It was all salad. Like, and that, that was it. Um, and then, you know, so... You had the king of Jerusalem lose his head. Um, his brothers, I'm pretty sure most of his barons also lost their heads. Um, and then there was uh, an instance before they were executed where uh, Guy um, went to the tent of Saladin with his older brother and was given a glass of water, right? Which back then meant that you, I'm going to spare you. Him being a moron, not knowing that, gave it to his brother, which is an insult. And so that's what led to the mass executions because he didn't know the customs of the of the time. Oh, so he just insulted them, right? Yeah, there right in his tent, in the guy's tent, surrounded by the guards, and was like, "Hey, I'm gonna I, I, here. You can have it because you fought. I just kind of sat on my ass for half the day, and pissed off the pissed off Saladin." The, the cup of water was knocked from his hands, which, again, in the desert is sort of a big deal. Yeah. And that, that sort of led to these, I don't want to say mass executions, that's the wrong word, but people were lined up and said, blop, blop, blop. And I, I, some, something like 400 executions happened that day, something like that. Jeez. So it was, it was the high command, a lot of the barons, um, most of the knights. There were some that were spared because they could prove that they were, they had certain lineages and stuff like that. But 
mostly it was that uh, it was just, you know, you're here to destroy us, we're going to destroy you, and that, that was that. Um, and it, it was one of those things where you just kind of look back at history and go, do you really need to do that? Yeah, probably. I understand. I get where he's coming from. I get it. But he got that mad because somebody passed a cup of water to somebody else. And again, I get it. It's you know, it's it's, 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 it's eleven it's eleven eighty nine, and it's customary. And I mean, if it was a cup of coffee, you probably would have drank it. But you know, it was a cup Absolutely. of water, so who knows what they put in it? Right. It's, so uh, one thing, and then Paul, I know you're still new to the whole unfiltered way of doing things but you're doing a fantastic job you fit right in appreciate it yeah, absolutely uh one thing that i want to share with you guys is i was able to find a quote from the time so you know it's better for me to tell you what they had to say about it than for me to sit here and ramble off as many interpretations as i can give no matter so how many that. times it's been processed or right. filtered or whatever it's always good from their mouth and this one comes from saladin's 17 year old son at yep. the time al aflado or al afto and what he says is when the king of the Franks, so this is the Christian mm -hmm. army we're talking about, when he was on a hill with that band, they made a formidable charge against the Muslims facing them, so that they drove them back to my father, Saladin. I looked towards him, and he was overcome with grief, and his complexion pale. Thank you, Patty. He took hold of his beard and advanced, crying out, give the lie to the devil. The Muslims rallied, returned the fight, and climbed the hill. When I saw that the Franks withdrew, pursued by the Muslims, I shouted for joy. We have beaten them. But the Franks rallied and charged again, like the first time, and drove the Muslims back to my father. He acted as he had done the first occasion, and the Muslims turned upon the Franks and drove them back to the hill. I again shouted, We have beaten them. But my father rounded on me and said, Be quiet. We have not beaten them until that tent, he's falls. As he was speaking to me, the tent fell. The sultan dismounted, prostrated himself in thanks to God Almighty. Somebody's not happy over there. Not at all. So that brings us into the surrender of the crusaders that we were talking yeah. about. Prisoners after the battle included Guy, his brother Almeric II, Reynold de, Ch or de Chatillon, Chatillon. William the fourth of Montferrat, or excuse me, and Guy of Lusignan and Reynold of Chatillon were brought to Saladin's tent. Saladin offered Guy water, which you were just saying, yep. they smack it out, and that's how that happens. Yep. This leads to our aftermath. The troop was oh, fixed upside down on a lance and sent all the way to Damascus. Which was a big fuck you to the Christians. Yes. <laughs> The Crusader King Guy was taken to Damascus as a prisoner and granted release in 1188, while the other noble captives were eventually ransomed. After executing Reynold of Chatillon, Saladin ordered that the other captive barons be spared and treated humanely. All 200 of the Templar and Hospitaller knights taken prisoner were executed on Saladin's orders, with the exception of the Grand Master of the Temple. I didn't know that. That's a lot. That's a lot of dudes. You got to think about it. Okay, so all these guys are hardened and trained fighters. They're they're sort of the elite of the elite back then. These weren't your men at arms. These weren't, you know, your your infantry that you picked up along the way. These guys, all they did all day long was train to do what they did, right? And when you lose one, the, the math is sort of weird because some people say, oh, they're they're worth five men. Some people say they're worth twenty. 
I'll just say it's somewhere in the middle. I'll just say 10. All right. Because they had the best armor. They had the best weapons. They had the best training. They, they learned how to work in groups. So when you lose one, you're losing a chunk of your force. When you lose that many, you're basically losing an entire division in today's military right. might. It, it, it's absurd how much it, it would cost an army to lose something like that. So I don't know why I didn't think the Crusades were as bad as they were. Dude, they're, they're, it's, it's some of the bloodiest history in, in mankind's entire story. It's, I mean, it's, it's 120 years of just pure carnage, you know? And, you know, for many different reasons, people say one thing. Many historians believe that it was for religious stuff. That's, I don't think so. I think it's all about money, you know, like I said before. Absolutely. But, you know, there, there's a certain, you got to get to a certain point where you just think enough is enough. It's, I mean, even, you know, the War of the Roses, people are like, okay, let's pump the brakes here after a little while. And, you know, that was the most powerful, well, one of the most powerful nations in history at the time. You know, a hundred years before. You know, even the, the French and the, the British were like, okay, let's pump the brakes. These guys just had at each other for 120 years. And some of the biggest pitched battles of all time. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people lining up against each other and having at it. It's crazy. It's bonkers. So, I, it, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where I, I kind of look at and I'm, like I said, I am by no means an expert and I, I get stuff wrong all the time. Like, earlier I thought Robert E. Lee went to VMI and I had no idea that he didn't still kind of thrown by that. But, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the aftermath of everything, you know, and you read the reports from people that were there or people that were serving under military leaders at the time, and you read their accounts, one thing that a lot of people that weren't fighting kind of talk about in the aftermath was how many people fucking died. Right. It's, it's an astronomical it's, amount. It's astronomical. I mean, Gettysburg was, was horrific. I mean, 30,000 right. guys dead. You know, it's only in three days. But that was three days. That's three days. We're talking, We're talking months, years of this stuff, and people dying constantly. And it's like, when you really look at the and numbers, it's, it, when you really look at the numbers, it, it damn, uh, they must have really hated each other. Which still happens today. I mean, you know, just look at what happened in you know the last 25 years you know, in the Middle East. It's, it's still going on. It's just it's one of those things where you just kind of look at it and kind of go, damn. But uh, yeah, so in the in the real the real thing that I want to talk about here is yeah, is getting down to the Crusader kingdom falling to Saladin. Okay, so the Saladin got Tiberius, uh, you know, and and the the, the leader uh, Countess Echevilla surrendered the, the fortress. All right, she was allowed to leave, and that was that was most of the family allowed to leave. They all left. All right. And, uh, you know, you, you have 20,000 people suddenly not doing anything because they can't. So are they going to go back home? Or are they going to just sit around in, in the Holy Land forever? Right. No, they, they reduced the garrisons. And after Hatton, uh, there was very little to work with and very little to, to defend the areas with. And 
the, the importance of the defeat really demonstrated the fact that after all these fortifications and all these towns were raised and, and captured by Saladin's forces, he had got Acre, Nablus, Jaffa, Torin, Saladin, Beirut, Ascalon, all these major hubs to funnel trade. All right, again, we're going back to the money. Tyre was saved, but that's because people were like, hey, let's not burn down one of the most historically important towns on the coast. Right, um, that's but, fair uh, to say. you know, when Saladin uh, went to Tyre, he did lay it in the siege, but he actually was was repelled. He, he actually lost that siege. Lost right. that siege. It, it wasn't but, for uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't for his ineptitude. He just got thought. Like there was there was a, a certain. I, I mean, I want to double check something because I this might be the second siege of Tyre. Mm-hmm. Um. And he was talking, let's see here, yeah, uh, so this happened from November of 87, 1187 to January of 1188. you got to remember, it's cold. It still gets cold over there. Right. You know, it's not, it's, you know, so, but um, this was when he tried to make the amphibious assault on the city and got completely wiped out. Um, okay. Not completely. It was, it was bad. It was uh, somewhere between five and 7,000 men lost during his siege and uh, it was, excuse me, it was considered a, uh, a a big morale boost to the Christians because he wasn't able to get tired, but he got everything else. And it's one of those things where you're looking at sort of a you know scale balance. He basically kicked ass after the battle happened and, and all this stuff happened. Um, but you know, you're looking at all of this stuff. He becomes this unstoppable force, and after this battle, they they all had to put stakes and, and just leave. So that's kind of what happened. And then Pope the Pope died, I think. The Pope died. I think the Pope died. He just kind of stopped the uh, the whole. Hey, let's keep fighting for uh, religious. According to the chronicler Arnold, news of the defeat brought to Rome. Is that what it was? Archbishop of Tyre caused Pope Urban III to die of shock. Yeah. Urban's successor would be Pope Gregory. Pope issued, Gregory VIII, yep. The eighth issued the bull Audita Tremendi, calling for a new crusade within days of his election. And in England and France, the Saladin tithe was enacted to raise funds for the new crusade. The subsequent Third Crusade did not get underway until 1189, but was very successful military operation through which many Christian holdings. Yep. So we kind of so jumped. We, we, we kind of jumped around a little bit in the uh, in the timeline here, but no, uh, you know, with, with starting with Hatton and then going into the Third Crusade and then ending with Jaffa, you know, everything everything sort of flip flopped, um, and then. When you get to uh, when you get to the end of the Third Crusade, when when Lionheart is like, okay, I've had enough of this crap, right. pull stakes and goes back home. You know that's that's a big uh, you know that's a big win for for the Abbasids. So it was it was, it was tough, it, you know. And I'd love to you know, and the, and the thing is is, and I keep saying that, but the the thing the thing is is that there are so many different events throughout all of these different crusades that have either been obviously embellished, you know, throughout history, you know, because who writes history? The victors. You know, 
Oh, absolutely they do. But if you're looking at a, a, an entire span of just nothing but war, you know, almost like the Warhammer universe where it's just nothing but war, it's right. one of those things where you're, you're kind of drawn to it because it's so chaotic and it's so sure, yeah, cool. and I think that's what you've gotten into with the Crusades too. It's like, it's, know, I, I didn't realize it was as chaotic as it was. It, it's not just a bunch of armies lining up and, and just going from one city to another. There there was an entire stratagem of defending Jerusalem. There's actually there's a great book by um well let me see if I can find it. Give me one second. Sure. Um, while you're searching for that, guys, we are going to wrap up here because we are at an hour and seven minutes, which is fantastic. So this is going to be working to a Spotify episode for us that will be released tonight. So if you're just tuning in now and you happen to be tuning into the end, you've got the whole thing on Spotify in about an hour. You can't beat that. This has been a very successful first uh, episode of our history happy hour. They'll they'll happen every now and again. We don't have a set schedule. Uh, Paul, did you find it? Yeah, I did. Uh, so it's awesome. it, I I thought it was called the Caesar Jerusalem, and it is. Uh, but it's the first siege. It's the one that happened in 1099 okay. uh, during the First Crusade. Uh, it's written by Connor Costic. Um, okay. I actually was able to get this for free because of my. I think I got it from my Goodreads account. I think. Oh, yeah. Something like that. I got it for free for some reason. Um, so I'm sorry, Connor, if you're somehow going to listen to this. I owe you about 20 bucks. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great read about how the Muslims initially defended Jerusalem. And then when they lost that siege, how throughout the years, it kept getting built up and built up and built up. Because that was the city to get. Yeah. you know. And then once... It got to a, a tipping point. You could, I, I mean, the, the walls up until I think got to 35 feet high, which back then was unheard of. Yeah, it is unheard of. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a great read. Uh, you know, if you guys can find it, it's great. Um, but yeah, Connor Kostic, The Caesar Jerusalem, 1099. All right. Well, uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, man, this has been great. This is awesome. Yeah, I think we should do another cheers. I, yeah. It's, I got a, I got a fresh it. beer here. So for, yeah, I know I need to get a fresh one myself. But uh, folks at home, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, leave us some comments. Let us know what you thought about this conversation. Eventually, I don't know when, we're just doing this kind of as we go. Uh, there will be another episode at some point. We don't know what the topic will be yet, but you'll see it first on our uh, event page. But this, this history happy hour thing is reserved for Paul and I. This is going to be our show. Yeah, this is this is. Yeah, no, this is our show. Yeah. Like, I may well, have a few guests with us, but he's the host of this. This is, this is our show. And I, I really appreciate the time, but uh, Christina is due on Friday. So, if, so that's uh, what I'm saying. I don't know when it's going to be. But it might uh, it might be a couple of weeks from now. It might be three months from now. I might. Uh, I, I have no idea. I'd love to do this again. This has been great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if... Uh, you know, if I can find the time to do it, I'll let you know, man. You let me know, man. We'll do it again soon. Sounds I great. I appreciate you being here. Folks, y'all have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll see you on the next one.